Hello, 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 and welcome to a new episode of World of Final Fantasy XIV. Your host, Keegan, here again, ready to bring you some more beautiful history from our wonderful game. I hope everybody enjoyed last week's episode of the 5.3 patch note review. I do know we had some technical difficulties with that episode. Um, So hopefully um, we have those a little bit more under control. Um, Today's episode is going to be broken up into two parts. The first part, before the break, we're going to be talking really briefly about the three healer classes since we discussed the three tank classes two weeks ago. And then our second half of the episode, uh, our special guest, Rax, is going to be joining us again for a spoiler cast of 5.3. So for people who have not completed MSQ, Puppets Bunker, Sapphire Weapon, um, I advise that after the first half of this episode... Uh, You do not listen to the second half of the episode because we will be discussing the story, what happened, the fights, some of the elements of the fight. Um, This episode will be posted up on Saturday. Uh, We are recording it on Friday. Rax himself. So you have a timeline. It is currently 3.15 in the afternoon on Friday. Rax is getting his run-through of... Puppets Bunker tonight at 9.45, and then as soon as we're done, we're going to record the spoiler cast portion of this episode um, once he has Puppets Bunker done and um, he's seen the fights. Then we're going to go into the spoiler cast of everything from 5.3, from the dungeon to the trial to the 24-man to a brief overlook of Shiva to the solo trial for the new Sapphire weapon. So, definitely look forward to that in the second half of the episode. Other than that, not much going on for the week to just catch up with current events. Um, I did not have raid this week. Uh, We called off raid for this week due to the patch that came out. We will be going back to raiding next week. But, of course, keep an eye on the uh, Twitch, www.twitch.tv, uh, to follow all of the streams. Um, I've been streaming almost all of the 5.3 patch. Uh, I will be streaming my Puppets Bunker run um, again uh, when I do it with Rax. So hopefully the people out there who have joined my stream, you guys um, are following me and you were able to see that um, stream. Because again, this won't post up till Saturday, so uh, hopefully, you know, people do join in and watch. Um, again, the raffle's still going on um, at www.patreon.com backslash World of FF14. If you join the Patreon, uh, you get entered. You get raffle tickets to enter into the contest for the commission of your. Final Fantasy XIV character. 
depending on what tier that you register at, the $1, $2, $5 tier, that is the amount of raffle tickets that you get. So definitely um, sign up by August 31st. We will be doing the raffle drawing on September 1st. Um, if I don't get enough people signed up, um, I will not, I won't be doing the raffle. So, um, hopefully I do get a lot of people interested, um, in this. And of course, all proceeds for the Patreon also go to other, um, contests and stuff uh, that I do hold. So, uh, this is going to be the first of many, um, possibly for commissions. Um, there are a lot of new items coming to the store, um, so I will be doing more trivia contests for mock station items for people. So um, as long as you know people are into this and they like the contest and they like the prizes and all, subscribe. Um, definitely subscribe to the, the Patreon. Um, it's definitely worth it. It's a good time, um, and uh, it you know it just helps. For me to put out those prizes and make the prizes worth it for you know you listeners who are taking the time out of your day to listen to these episodes every week, um, I want to reward you guys and I want to give back. Um, but in order to give back, uh, I have to you know be able to have a way to do that. Um, and I you know I don't have Patreon levels like some other podcasters have out there who have ten dollar, fifteen dollar, twenty five dollar levels. I don't believe in that. I, I don't. Um, we're all in the same boat with COVID going on. A lot of us probably aren't working or people got their hours cut. People are furloughed. So I made my, you know, my Patreon tiers more manageable um, just to be able to give back um, so I can put out, you know, great content and great contests and great events um, and great prizes um, for my listeners. So every little bit helps. So with that, Let's get started on this episode. I know we normally take a short break, but we're going to take that break um, after I go over the healers um, before I, uh, we introduce Rax back into the episode um, later on. So we have our three healer classes that we're going to cover today. The first one is going to be my main favorite that I play. Uh, which is our white mage. White magic, the arcane art of succor, was conceived ere eras past that the world might know comfort. Alas, man began perverting its powers for self-gain and by his wickedness brought about the sixth umbral ca catastrophe. Although the art was subsequently forbidden, it is now in the midst of a revival at the hands of the pagel, chosen of the elements. Which we all know to become a conjurer slash white mage, the Pagel are home to Gridania with one of the best white mages, Kanisana. The mages of Amdapur devised this arcane art during the fifth astral era to counter the destructive black magic of the Makai sorcerers. Focusing heavily upon spells of restoration and purification, the practice of white magic led to great advances in Amtapur society. Intoxicated by their newfound power, however, the Magi surrendered prudence to ambition. They created ever more potent magics to wield in their conflict with Mach, the infamous War of the Magi, until the clash of eldritch energies upset the very balance of nature. 
the warped ether manifested as great floods, and the realm was drowned by what is now known as the Sixth Umbral Calamity. Both cities were lost, and the magics that brought about the catastrophe thenceforth adjudged dangerous and forbidden. The ruins of Andapur were swallowed by the forest, the fallen city and its secrets concealed by the elements of the Twelveswood, and it would be another thousand years before the art of white magic once more saw the light of day. Some five centuries passed, the elements relented and did at last allow the legacy of the Amtipori magic to be wielded by a chosen few. The Pagel, revered leaders of Gridania, have since served as the stewards of white magic and oversee its careful instruction. When we look at the Pagel, the youthful and long-lived Pagel are not a race unto themselves, but rather are born rarely into certain higher families in the Tolswood. The process of aging slowing to a crawl as they approach puberty. Naturally attuned to the whispers of the forest, these horned childlike beings serve as a living link between man and elemental. The Pagel have a long history as the region's healers and protectors, and as the chosen of the elementals are sanctioned in the use of white magic. Two main white mages to quickly mention Atoakant. Pajeli nature manifested soon after birth, and his proud Gridanian family willingly entrusted his upbringing to the conjurers of Stillglade Fane. He grew to become an accomplished hearer, but soon grew dissatisfied with the role. He came to realize that to truly protect the Twelvesworld, he must also cleanse the source of impurities found beyond the confines of the forest. Accompanied by his devout companions, he traveled far and wide, employing his mastery of white magic to purge corrupted ether, heal the sick, and solve the suffering. Ever consumed by wonderlust, the restless Pajal never returned to Gridania and eventually met his end in the distant lands of La Nocia. He died at the age of 198, but always looked like a young boy. Eschiva Keys, exhibiting heightened magical potential from a young age, she was encouraged to walk the path of conjury by friends and relatives. She quickly tired of her pagile instructor's stifling conservatism, however, and abandoned her arcane studies to become a lancer. Following in her beloved grandsire's footsteps, she took to spears far more readily than spells, and soon forged herself into one of the guild's finest combatants. Her grandfather had been a follower of Atoa Kant, and even after the Pagel's passing, he continued to serve as a sentinel at one of the great mages' place of rest. Once old age claimed her grandsire, she would volunteer to sh- shoulder his solemn duty. <clears throat> a few major skills that white mages have, and you know we are all familiar with these. Benediction. Um, benediction is a huge spell. Very good for massive tank busters. Or if a tank gets into a bind or if they have to use an invuln, um, benediction instantly restores all health. Um, very important spell to have on your hotbar. Holy 
very good um, when it comes to AoEs. Not as good in solo combat, um, but in dungeons and large pull situations, um, holy trumps any amount of glares. And Asylum um, puts up a giant bubble, and that bubble keeps everybody inside healed for X amount of seconds. Um, huge again, um, if AoE damage is getting ready to go out in a raid, um, you pop your Asylum. So when the AoE goes off, everybody who's standing in it is constantly getting healed until you can get an AoE heal off yourself. <clears throat> but those are our white mages. Next, we're going to talk a little bit about our scholars. Scholars are a tricky class because you have your pet that you have to maintain, which is Eos or Solis, depending on what route you are going. <clears throat> In an age long past, when mankind flourished under the radiance of arcane mastery, the island of Vildbran was home to a city-state called Nim. Though the history of that age tells of countless wars waged with earth-shattering incantations, it was a brilliant strategic maneuvering of Nim's scholars that allowed their mundane army of mariners to throw back would-be conquerors time and again. Of course, scholars, they use books, um, the Book of the Elements, to cast their spells, same as a summoner. Um, all leveling is shared between the scholar and the summoner, which makes it one of the best, better classes for people who don't know if they want to DPS or heal. Because if you level one, you level the other at the same time. The fifth astral era was an age defined by remarkable advances in the arcane arts. In such an age, the nation of Nim, with its scant population of sorceress adepts, found itself at a distinct disadvantage when pitted against the ruthless black mages of Mach or the relentless white mages of Andapur. Thus, it was the Nimian military relegated its few precious sorcerers to a specialized support role within its standing army. Rather than serve as simple healers, however, these men and women were expected to take command of the battlefield and weave spells that maximized their mariners' effectiveness in combat. In answer to the demands of their new position, Nimian mages learned to bind and control fairies that they might entrust the otherworldly creatures with a share of their restorative duties. This allowed these dunes of war to focus more fully upon strategy and tactics, a practice which earned them the title of scholar. But even the most brilliant tacticians could not outmaneuver the tragedy that was to come, as befell many wonders of the era, both the military wisdom of Nim and the disciples of his teaching were lost to the colossal floods of the Sixth Umbral Calamity. The fairies, with soul crystals provided an anchor for their existence, these otherworldly servants are made manifest through the accumulated ether of past Nimium mages. Fairies are known to adopt at least two different forms, Eos, whose domain is sunlight and restoration, and Selene, whose do domain is moonlight and invigoration. Depending on what you're trying to do, the fairy that you do choose is huge in battle. Um, again, they do have very important skills. Um, I don't play Scholar, so I can't really break down these skills. Um, 
Deployment tactics is a big one. This technique developed as a logical extension of military scholar philosophy. The mage eliminates the need for lengthy incantations by using a previously cast spell as an axis, along which the existing boon can be extended to nearby allies. Um, and then you have angel feathers, adloquium, and leeches. Again, scholar has not been a class that I ever dabbled in so I can't give too much input on this class um, I do know in a raid setting per E5S even E6S a really good geared scholar could solo heal those two fights and if you have a good white mage who's geared properly can power DPS while the scholar is doing the solo healing so Definitely, definitely a good class. Um, maybe something I may dabble in later on down the road, but until then, um, not as much, really. The last one um, we're going to talk about, and we talked briefly about it in the 5.3 patch notes because of all the buffs that it, get, it got, Astrologian, a healer who plays with cards. In his quest to master the skill of foresight, man turned his gaze to the truth writ in the heavens. It was the people of Shar Layan, however, who saw fit not only to read the stars, but to write their movements as well. By attuning their ethereal energies to that of constellations, they learned to wield magics with heretofore unseen properties. Thus was astromancy born a new form of magic which grants its users power over fate. Employing a star globe and divining deck in their miraculous deeds, fortune always smiles upon these masters of arcana. The famed author of The Five Ages, the, the Charlian sage Lufan, devoted two decades of his life from the year 210 to the year 230 of the Sixth Asha era to compiling a comprehensive study on the merits of stargazing. By analyzing the expansive historical records of man's attempts to read his own fate, he hoped to separate the fables of superstition from the more reliable knowledge of evidence-based astrology. With his methodical scrutiny uncovered, however, was that much of the ancient wisdom was founded in legitimate arcane theory. This revelation shifted the entire focus of his research, and his subsequent efforts to reconstruct and adapt these principles resulted in the creation of Astromancy, an art which attuned the wielder's ether to the movement of the heavens. Following his discoveries, the cards of the fortune teller, previously considered an amusement fit only for children, were reevaluated from an academic perspective. The deck of Arcana, which its cards represent of the constellations, was integrated along with the star globe into a uniquely Charlian discipline of magic. Um, the Star Globe plays a huge part because the cards are imbued into the Star Globe. So whenever you draw cards, you're drawing from the Star Globe. The cards of the Astralians' Divining Deck are known as Arcana. Each major Arcanum is decorated with an illustration representing one of the six elemental heavens and serves as a symbolic link between a practitioner and the constellations from which she draws power. When we look at the cards, there's six, 
um, everything from the first heaven to the sixth heaven. <coughs> Your balance card is fire. And that's the second heaven. The Ewer um, card, or water card, is from the fifth heaven. The arrow, which stands for wind, is based on the fourth heaven. The spear, which is ice, is the gate to the sixth heaven. The spire, or lightning card, is the gate to the third heaven. And last but not least, the bowl card, which is your earth card, is the first of the sixth heaven gates. When you draw these cards, balance, arrow, and spear are your melee cards for your 6% bonus. Ewer, spire, bowl are your 6% cards for your ranged. Vice versa, if you draw one and you accidentally put it on its wrong class, it's still a 3% damage boost, but you want to maximize that 6% damage boost as much as possible. When you look at their tricks of the trade, uh, Celestial Opposition is a AoE heal. If used under the right sect, Dirunal or Nocturnal, or while Neutral Sect is popped, it will pop shields and give a regen over time. Gravity is a huge AoE attack. Not good for solo targets, but really good when you have two or more. Uh, Benefit um, is one of your heal, and your Aspect of Benefit um, gives a heal over time. And Astral Stasius, by throwing wide the gate to the seventh heaven, the highest of the astral domains, the Astrologian favors the battlefield favors the battlefield with Celestial Benediction. This technique is said to hold the power to skew one's fate towards an almost certain victory. Which I believe that is their level 3 limit break. If I remember correctly. And the two major astrologians for people who follow the story. The Viva Bird and Jana Quinard de Durandair. For anybody who's went through the story, the Viva was a 16-year-old who came to Eorzea to spread the word of the Astrologians when people didn't want to hear about it. Jana Quinard was also on her side to protect her from anybody that were to give her any hard time while she was trying to pass on the word of the Astrologian. So those are the brief synopsis of your three healer classes. Again, you're all allowed to make you know your own opinion of which class you want to play. Um, my goal is to go over the history. Um, I've played both White Mage and Astro. Love them both. I raid with my White Mage, and I dungeon run and all with my Astro. So I, I play both on a regular basis. Scholar is the only one that I don't because it's a little harder on a PS4 to control a pet and myself um, than it is on a PC. It's just easier. So with that, we're going to take a short break, which to everybody else in the audience, the listeners, it will be a short break. 
But in real time, it will be about seven hours before I record the second half of this episode. But we will be back with our special guest again, Rax. Um, we will be discussing the 5.3 story. So it will be a spoiler-filled second half of the episode. So for the listeners that have not completed 5.3, MSQ, or Puppet's Bunker, or the Sapphire Weapon story, um, listen at your own risk um, when we get back from the break. And I will put another warning out before we start going into um, what we're going into. So give us a couple minutes, and we will be right back with the second half of this episode. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome back to Roll the Plot Fantasy 14. Keegan, a.k.a. Artemis, here. Um, like I said before our break, um, the next half of this podcast is going to be spoiler-heavy. So for everybody who has not finished 5.3, uh, MSQ, or Puppets Bunker, or any of that content, um, listen at your own risk. Um, if you don't want to be spoiled, um, you exit the episode now and go about your business. Um, but I'm just giving the fair warning. Um, as everybody knows from last week, we have our... Special guest Rax back with us, who has just finished, um, at the time of this recording, Puppets Bunker. So we'll cover Puppets Bunker first, since that is the freshest thing in our heads. And um, we will go from there. So what did you think? Puppets bunker. What what are my thoughts? Uh, I think I think Square Enix has done a incredible job on these last two raids and and especially Puppets Bunker. I, I like. Uh, I think they're doing a really um, a really good job on implementing unique and creative mechanics uh, where it might be a single element to understand, but then they stack those elements together. Like there's that star mechanic. Uh, and then it, it kind of gets, all the stars get plotted in different positions and then they explode out and cover the, the arena uh, in different, in different ways. So I think it's just, um, they're doing a really good job when it comes to creativity on these raids. And it's actually it, like, it's actually difficult, you know, like some, because you have so many people on a 24 man raid, um, that can ease it as far as DPS and rotation goes, but when the mechanics are actually you know difficult and tie into the storyline, that's when things get interesting. So um, I think they're they're doing a great job. The the good thing with this raid and with mechanics, we know from the first boss they rehashed Ozma and they rehashed Thunder God from both. Uh, Void Arc series and the um, second series, the Evil East series. Yep. But they modified it in such a way that they added the knockoff ability where you can get knocked off. And a lot of the mechanics 
you still had to coordinate with the other raid groups. The second boss fight, the star mechanic that you were talking about, that came from Twintanya. Mm-hmm. That was in that fight. But back the, in the day. Back in the, well, Twintanya wasn't really that far back in the day because it was still Shadowbringers. Um, but then you go back farther. Um, there's previous ones, but you didn't really see that star mechanic, I think, really until a lot of Stormblood stuff. But mm-hmm. what's really interesting with that second boss fight of all the raids and all the 24-man raids I think that we've done, I'm trying to rack my brain real quick. I think that's the first one where you fought three different bosses and the mechanics all came together in each raid group's area. Hence the arrows with the dive bombs that dropped. You had to coordinate with the other groups to see where theirs was coming because it was crossing into your territory. Um, as well as the mechanic with the swords where they lined up on the, in the hangar and they shot across the screen. Those are interesting mechanics. Yeah. Those are interesting. Yeah. It, like, yeah. Insane. Insane. It is insane. And taking that one step further, uh, so the very first fight, you can fall off the edge of the map. And in the last fight, you can't go to the edge of the arena and there are a multitude of pushback mechanics. And then in the fight in the middle, there's this incredible mechanic where you have to shift between both between left and right. Um, but if you, and if you mess up an entire half of the arena will, you'll take damage from half the arena. Like it, it just the way they did that, the coordination you need, and the consequence of your actions in this in this raid tier, um, it, it's it it's worth the reward, and at the same time, it's difficult. You know what I mean? It, it's it, I feel like it's the perfect amount of challenge for a twenty four man raid, and they're getting really good at uh really ironing out these mechanics for for big raids like this. And, and you have to say. Story-wise for the near and had her just correlating that world into the Final Fantasy XIV world with Calusia taking out the mountain and having Puppet's Bunker hiding right there underneath the mountain, that's, that takes a lot of work to, to really be able to correlate two stories like that and bring two worlds together into one is, is insane. Like That whole time, there's just that mountain there the whole fighting starts, and then all saw the hiding underneath the mountain is Puppet's Bunker, just sitting there. But right. And you like, play Automata, and there's... You, how does that even work? Like, how, how do you, like, make that work? And they found some way to do that. Yeah, because, like, the, the two worlds are really... Even though they're fantasy, they are really, really different. One's a futuristic world. One's a fantasy-based almost... Like, there's little tidbits of like wizards and and uh old school you know um roles in history like samurai and stuff like that so tying it together uh it's just it, it it's really unique it's a really unique um uh push and an integration that i haven't really seen anywhere else or in any other type of video game yet and i think it's just incredible uh, how they're how they're able to do it, and in this on this specific raid, I thought something cool 
what they did was like it, there was an effect to your actions to a part of this world right so the the planes come flying out start attacking or bombing the little town or festival that you're participating in correct so, right like I, I thought that was totally cool how it, like there was a consequence to what you were doing in this completely little separate bubble of uh it's not even final fantasy 14 it's final fantasy 14 and near automata right so um correct it, it's just super cool and, and the reason they started bombing is basically because they were holding the android and they wanted that android they back. back whatever they, they want it back and how and like you said them correlating those spaceships coming in and bombing into that Final Fantasy fourteen world where okay, we already know we're on the first, separate from the source, so it is a separate area. But where in the world do futuristic airships fit into that lore? In what capacity does that does that even happen? And they make it work. They they literally fluidly make it work into a story. And and that's where I tip my hat off to Square Enix. And Yoshi P and the guys who did the near uh, automata who came in to do this, they made it work. They tied it in to a point where you want more and you just want to continue to do more. Um, and, and that takes a lot. Uh, that, that takes a lot. Yeah. You can tell like, you know, it's not them just like, Oh, saying, Hey, you know, use our game and, you know, promote us or promote us in a way and then do whatever you want. No, you can tell Yoshi P and I don't know the director or the game developer behind you know Domino. Right. They, they're right. sitting right. they're sitting at a table, maybe they even have like four or five representatives each. And they're like, How can we do this? Or how can we how can and, have, and make it work? Yeah, and, yeah. They're actually putting it makes sense. In. That's it shows. It really does show. So four fights. Rank them in order. So you think it was the hardest to the easiest of the, of the four boss fights? Oh, the four boss fights. Um, the final boss fight was not hard for the first half, but the second half was difficult. Yes. Um, yes. A lot of those mechanics, a lot of those mechanics are, are hard to follow. Okay. And then <sighs> the first boss fight, I, I personally found that it was easy. Because uh, it, it it's kind of like a repeated mechanic where uh, it continuously rotates, and you know you're gonna fall off the side of the map. But this this is me as a DPS, so finding the overlaps and kind of catching on, I was able to take. Because so the first fight allows you to take a hit if you're smart about it, and therefore you can learn from it. So I, I didn't find it to be that difficult, but it was a great starting fight. Um, the last fight I think was very difficult but started off kind of slow um and then the third fight was pretty i thought the third fight was the most difficult i think that was the the third fight in the chamber yeah see and for me that was the easiest for me because that the mechanics weren't that bad um once you figured out what was being put up on the on the wall on the screens and finding the safe spots, it, that fight for me was the easiest. By far, the last fight was was the hardest, um, hands down. Um, the second part of that fight was was rough. Um, 
the first fight, um, that was actually, I've been in Pubba's Bunker twice now, but the first time I lost power, so I didn't really see the whole first fight. By the time my power came back on and I got back in, they were already done. So that literally was my first full run of it. Um, it's not bad if you follow the other raid groups, but the knockoff mechanics, if you're not close enough to the boss and you get caught, you will get pushed off. Um, there is the, you know, there is that added fall off, um, to that fight. Um, I think the most creative of the four is the second fight by far. Um, the way they incorporated those planes, the way that you had to work together with your team and watch the other alliances because their mechanics fall into your area and just the way they did it and the way the planes hopped into the hangar and then you had to move and then dodge where the swords are coming from. I think they had the most interesting and the best new mechanics that I've seen. of, of the Yeah, by far, by far, number two is the best fight of Puppet's Bunker. And uh, as you're saying, like, like my, my favorite mechanic is when the, the airship or the mechs line up the three of them and they split that whole yep. arena half and you got to just jump from left, right, left and that, and you don't know what order it's going to happen in, and it happens quick. And it doesn't always, yeah. And it doesn't always go left, right, left because when we ran the other the last night, that Wednesday night, um, it did go left, left, right, or right, right, left. It, it modifies, it changes. It's completely randomized order. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. It, it is a very interesting um, mechanic. Yeah, you gotta you gotta pay um, attention. And like I, I think these fights, like this whole twenty uh, four man raid is a great awareness builder for like the entire community because you know you can you can run through some of these extreme fights and like you know you, you know you can take certain hits or whatever but in this case that kind of mechanic really pressures you to be aware and attentive and at the same time react appropriately so i like i i love what's going on with this raid here i absolutely love it so i'm thinking so of course to predict uh the last tier has to involve adam and eve in some way um of course for people who have played you know the automata series um adam and eve you know was the final um in that series um it's got to almost be they're going to be included in this final the final rate um whenever 5.5 comes out you know we're probably looking at a year you know down the road um but if I had to guess, that probably would be where we're where we're heading to, most likely. What area of the universe? It's been a while since I played it, so I don't really know. Um, I would like to see them somehow incorporate the amusement park into the raid in some mm -hmm. way. Uh, that's a, a very interesting section of the world. The amusement park was a great area, um, but. Yeah, that would be options are endless. That would be really sick because no, I would add so like that. Uh, just jumping in here, the yep the that was one of the creepiest uh, environments I've ever experienced in a video game, and oh the the amusement yeah, park the amusement park and like yeah I can tell Square Enix has been kind of pushing that because I remember uh when, during the Hawk Manor days. So back in, you know, early AR, um, possibly around Heaven's Word 2, because they did a, a remake of, of Hawk Manor. I know they started getting creepy with things, right? And then they brought in Palace yeah. of the Dead to keep that vibe going. 
and they got a lot of feedback. I remember Yoshi P said something in a in a either a private discussion or in one of the live letters. And he's like, uh, "Yeah, we've just been getting feedback on this, and we're gonna take it further, and we're, we've been listening to you guys." So, like uh, incorporating that amusement park as an entire, you know, potential twenty-four month raid set, or just bringing it in for like the final ending to this, like. Uh, either direction would would be fantastic, and I think it would change. Yeah, change the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So, so to move on to the elephant in the room, Uh-oh. main story, main story quest. So, both of our predictions were wrong. Yeah, we were way off. <laughs> um, we, we we were we were way off. Um, I. I had thought, you know, we were going to be done with the Assians altogether. Um, come to find out, we're not. Um, so I was right about that. I, I was right about that part. Rax was correct about that, but Rax considered Elidibus was still going to survive through all of this. Right, right. Um, in actuality, he technically still is. He's just now living trapped in a tower. Um, but he's not around. Mm-hmm. Um, the shock of the entire thing is uh, Soyo's brother, his body is now reappeared. And um, I thought he was dead. I thought she killed him. Yeah. Apparently not. Unless they can re- reanimate dead corpses. <laughs> In this world, who knows? It's a possibility. But he's there. He's, he's um, there. Like That new Asian is off the wall. He is a, he's a riot. He's hysterical, but he's diabolical at the same time. Right. He just has the little bit of all of it mixed in a one. So, yeah, I, I know Yoshi P holds Kafka very, very closely to his heart. I, I do yes. not share the same passion for Kafka as everybody else in the Final Fantasy community does. I respect him, right? But nonetheless, Yoshi right. P's baby is Kafka. And I think He's trying yeah. to recreate that same energy through this new Asian. Yeah, yeah, because you can see Kefka, he's got that crazy, like, maniacal laugh and just maniacal, like, vibe to him. And that's exactly how Kefka and God Kefka was yeah. back in the Final Fantasy series. And I love that they're reimagining that through him. But I'm curious on the angle that they're going with this. Because he wasn't one of the 13 or 14. He wasn't in the convocation. Because a little, that, a little bit, that was the end of the convocation. Now, we know Emmett's still alive. Because in the Warrior of Light fight, which we're going to talk about, Emmett Selk saves us. Right. So, we know he's still alive. And he was the one, uh, he was the one that walked away from the convocation. Right. Which, of course, opens up more questions on why did he put... The war, you know, us through what he put us through, and that whole Hades fight and all for what purpose? I still think Emmett has an ulterior motive in this story, in some way, mm-hmm. because he put us through all that and through Amarat, and we fought him as he was Hades, and he's now still alive, and then he comes and saves yeah, us. Why? He he implanted the seed in the Vothry, right? That was him. Right, so Co- correct, so, correct. It, like what he did was, you know, he ruined 
this person's entire life let's let's be honest and then he in he led to this crazy infection within the entire world of the first right right and then in the end he switches in like yeah you kind of you kind of change him in some way or change his opinion but it's like something just seems off there i I feel i feel like there's a there's a missing piece and that missing piece is there on purpose correct and i feel yeah so we know 5.4 5.5 whatever 6.0 expansion is going to be I think we're still going to see more of Emmett. And I think Emmett's going to somehow come back either on the side of good because, and we'll just go right, you know, into it. The warrior of light fight by far, I think amazing trial. Um, a friend of mine just sent me a video that they cleared it. And he said, it's by far the EX version of that fight is the best EX fight in the game. Mm-hmm. And th- this is one of my, one of my static guys. And he put this one up there as the top EX fight. Um, I have not been in there yet, uh, but if it's anything like the normal fight is, I found a normal fight difficult. Yeah. Um, the mechanics were reminiscent of X-Death. As far as the blizzard and the fire mechanic goes, same thing, just a little modified, but same concept. But the way they rehashed the mechanic and reused it was original. Yeah, and even like the uh, the soundtrack on the, the you know the pretend warrior of light, like it's it, it just the music gets you going, and then the difficulty of the normal fight is is uh, I think appropriate, right? This is this is like a final fight of an expansion pack, right? So. Um, like I found some of the previous fights, uh, final fights, to be a little bit too easy. Uh, even like the story yeah. was great. Here, I'm not. I can't say yeah. that it was too easy. Like I had to learn some stuff and like uh, really just adapt. And I, I, I feel like they've been stepping their game up as far as like finding that right balance of like what's too hard and what's too easy to where the community can can get around everything there. So, um, correct. Because if you look at the previous fights. Valtteri was, and Innocence was the final trial. Then you had Hades, yep. and now you have War, Warrior of Light. Like, Hades and is great. The, the fight first, overall is great, but at the same time, there's... Hades, it was easy, it was though. Easy. The normal version, <laughs> I felt, was just too easy. I felt the normal version was just too easy. Agreed. I completely agree. Um, <clears throat> this fight, for people who struggle with certain mechanics, that fire mechanic... I've done that fight two, three times now. And there's still people with the fire mechanic that they don't seem to realize that it's not just stop and stand still, but you can keep attacking. If you keep attacking, you haven't stopped. Yep. So you have to pause. The pause literally means pause, do nothing. No auto attack, no nothing. Cause if you still do anything, I haven't figured out if it hits you for each attack that you do, because I've seen some people constantly keep attacking and it hits them three, four or five times. And then I see some people who stop, but their auto attack goes off, so it hits them for the initial, it hits them for one extra. I don't know how it really counts the hits. So if you don't pause, you're going to definitely take more than the first hit, and that could make it difficult for the healers if multiple people are getting hit. Right, right. But 
I do love that they brought back the original Warrior of Light. Yeah. Like, a la Final Fantasy 1. The original Final Fantasy. He is the original Warrior of Light. Gear, vision, everything about him is him. Right, right. Like, to a T, uh, the design, the color scheme is there. And it's it's cool because they did some... I couldn't tell if it was a lighting effect or if it was just like a, a slight discoloring to them. But you could see like the slight dark corruption by the way yes. they, they, they colored him, yeah. which, is, which was just awesome. Yeah. And even the armor, even the armor that he was wearing was a little, the coloring was a little off because from what I remember of the Warrior Light, he was a little, a little more color to him. Yeah. And I think the way they, they did it because he was an Asian, right? And they always had the you know that purple the purple tincture to them when they you know warped it in and out and all that stuff. And I think they just kept that tincture to the color to know that that was an Asian. But look wise and armor wise, they brought all that back. It, and and I really like that because that's one good thing again that Yoshi P and M do with all the story stuff. Even thinking X Death, thinking Kefka. All these people that they're bringing back, yeah, they're almost pure like ripoffs of those characters. They're literally just bringing them back and just updating them for our generation and for people like me. You know, being almost forty, I played all these Final Fantasies, and it's good to see that they're bringing them back now. What I want to see, and this is always for another episode, I want to eventually see Final Fantasy VII brought into this world in some kind of raid setting and bring it separate into this world. You know, it's only a matter of time. They're not going to let that. We have been, yeah, but we have been saying that for years that it's only a matter of time and they constantly keep doing different raids. Eden, Final Fantasy. I don't remember which one Eden is from. Off the top of my head, I can't think about it. Eight. So that's where Eden came from. Then you had the Omega series, which brought back, you know, X-Dance, Kefka, you know, all, all these chaos back from Final Fantasy 1. You no, know, they brought him back. They, they keep bringing, having all these raids and they just keep dodging 7 and they just keep staying away from 7. And I don't know why they do they're, that. Because they're holding it. They're saving it, right? And now, right, we have Final Fantasy 7 Remake. So That's why I'm, I'm hoping this there are is, is there. I'm hoping 6.0, um, that's what they're, they're going to do. Uh, I'm hoping in 6.0, when next expansion comes out and they bring out that next eight-man raid, it's going to revolve around 7. Because by the time we see 6.0, it'll be a year, probably a year and a half, because um, we still have two more patches. And patches usually run six to eight months, usually, especially with you know COVID going on. Everything's you know behind schedule. Um, we may see part two of seven remake that that would be their time to capitalize on it at that point. You know, now would be the time because remake is still fresh and you're going to have the second one coming out. 6.0 would be the perfect time to put some kind of story with seven into Final Fantasy 14. Yeah. So if they, like, what, what would they, what, what would they, I'm just speculating here. Like what, what would they bring in as a raid? From Final Fantasy 7, right? I 
I wouldn't even expect it to be a raid. I wouldn't expect like a 24 man raid. I would expect an eight man raid mm-hmm. and somehow correlate that because think of how they're doing the raids now anyway. Um, and of course, we were a little, we sidetracked off yes, of. Yes, we did. We're, we're did, but we will, you know, we will circle back around to the, you know, the Warrior of Light. Um, but while we're on the, on the topic, if we think of the last two raid sets, Omega and Eden, there really wasn't a, a, um, too much walking and stuff like in Alexander and uh, Bahama. So this would be the perfect time for them to capitalize on seven because right. you don't have to really put in a lot of walking. You can really just story base it around and have a lot of trial fights. I got it. There's enough lore. There's enough lore in there to make that work. I got it. I know exactly what they're saving it for. I know exactly what the, the Final Fantasy seven raid is going to be in 6.0. You ready for this? Go ahead. Knights of the Round Table. That would be difficult because you already have that with Thornton. That's Because they brought Knights of the Round. That's true. You brought. Well, I can see them somehow could, ma- making. They could totally revive that, just like they did uh, they, with all the other. Like, they could, and and if they want to do like a twenty-four man raid and do it as the next twenty-four man raid, you have Midgar. Oh, you know, right, you right. have you you have the train graveyard. You have the you know Shinra headquarters. You have so many locations that you can use to turn it into a twenty-four man raid. If you want to turn it into a twenty-four man raid, right? And imagine my like, o- my only problem is: do you have enough bosses for a twenty-four man raid? You know that are overpowered enough that you need twenty-four people to kill. Right, right. That's the issue. And there, there's so much potential potential for this, right? So, like, think about it. So, uh. Was it Praetorium? I think where you're on, like you're in yep. the mechs, right? They could do something right. similar with a raid for Final Fantasy VII, where you're actually riding the motorcycles, and maybe you're like following Cloud or whatever, and you hop off the motorcycles at the end, and you raid a Shinra fact, the Shinra reactor, or something like that, right? Or you just yeah, like there, there's so much they could do with that. Like there's so much potential there. Six point yeah, yeah, <laughs> this one, yeah. Uh, so anyway, circling back, that that's our sidetrack of the episode, um, <laughs> listeners. So going back to our spoil cast. Um, so we have the new Asian. Um, he's with, of course, Xenos. So we know something's going on with the Garlean Empire and the Asians are still involved. So we're going back to the source. Um, we know Xenos is still PO'd that he got bested by the Warrior of Light, so he's still plotting his revenge on how to kill the Warrior of Light. So we know this is going to be revolved around the Garlean Empire. So I see us probably going into the actual Garlean Empire zones. I, I see us going that route those will be the next areas that we'll be adventuring into. Um, I can't see it going any other, any other way. I can't see it's going to like Charlie and I can't see it because the way the story just pitted itself, we're eventually going into Garlemald and into those areas and going to take the fight to them. I think is the route they're going to take now going forward instead of sitting back and then them come to us. I think Rob and everybody's just going to say, you know what? It's time for us to come to do something and take the fight to them. And I think we're going to be invading 
depth. That's my speculation. I don't know what yours is. Um, my speculation as far as direction goes. Uh, hmm. I, I think you're partially correct. So I, I think we're definitely going to charge in there and, you know, we're going to stop Xenos from doing whatever he's doing before he can get to the point to where things get bad. But uh, as I think I brought this up either on the last podcast or to a couple of FC mates, right? So they just added the flying mechanic to all the old Realm Reborn zones. This is an opportunity to revisit those zones in some way, storyline-wise as well. So, um, And I brought this up with the FC mates that I also could possibly see it where we come back to the source and they invade us and we rehash the old zones and somehow like what they did in WoW and rehash some of the zones but change them as we got invaded by the Garlean Empire yeah. in 5455 and in 6.0 just be a lot of the ARR zones but redone and reimagined to look different after we got invaded by Xenos. Yeah. Like he became this unstoppable force. And I still think now that the acid are still evolved, we're going to see an old, how they took over Shinrayu and controlled Shinrayu. I think the same thing's going to happen with Zodiac. Cause eventually Zodiac is going to be involved. And we're coming to the life cycle where 6.0 could be the last one. Mm-hmm. Because Yoshi P has hinted many times that he was eventually going to be moving on to another project, and this was eventually going to end. Yeah. So if six if six point is going to be if that's going to be the end, and six point five, you know, they're going to run it out to six point five, and that's where they're going to end it. I think it's going to be a big Heidelin Zodiac finale, and Xenos is going to be the one behind controlling Zodiac in some capacity with the Asian's power, and it's going to just be an overall final end and this is where it's going to come to a head yeah i mean i thought zodiac would come into the picture way sooner and he still has not been revealed or shown um right me also that's that's how i thought this one was gonna end yeah i thought something like either like i know elitibus was supposed to represent zodiac's zodiac's heart right heart so uh i mean and, and i get that but at the same time like it never led to the point of him being summoned or manifested and uh it's, it's not trust me it's not a letdown but at the same time like i feel like this is something's a brewing here uh that's leading towards zodiac uh being brought into the world and now we have this new asian who is not part of what is it was it the te- team asundered right so um yeah yeah the, the convocation so what is is the group what's the tie in here? And like, I want, like one of my speculations is this new ASEAN is actually a new ASEAN, right? So like a little bit somebody came to Tsukuyomi's brother or did something or whatever it was. And he's actually not part of whatever the past of the ASEANs were. He's completely fresh. And now he has some revelation of what it was. And now he's partially insane. So now he takes his knowledge and takes it in a different direction. That's one of my weird speculation theories, but uh, 
at the same time, it could just be there's. Because he never thing. really mentioned he, he he never really mentioned anything except something along the lines of you know they must have failed you know however he he worded it yeah um but he was not part of that group yep. you know that convocation ended with Elidibus and of course Emmett who is the loud last survivor of that convocation but again. He's going to come back somehow. He's still involved in some way. I don't think he's just walking away and that's it. He'd say goodbye. I don't think that's going to happen. That that would be too perfect. Mm-hmm. But in, in, somehow Zodiac is still going to be around. I don't think he's a separate group of Asians. I, I think he's still part of them. I just think he has his own agenda. And now that the convocation failed this is his time to step up and be the one to get the job done and revive either revive his race or, you know, bring his race, you know, justice to them. Because if you think about it, when you did this, that one solo instance and followed a little bit through um, that whole area, going through that story, the Asians were just real people, right? They were literally just real human beings like everybody else. The, the giant rope people were, were just a cover. It was just a mask. Mm-hmm. He, wanted to, he wanted the Warrior Darkness to see what, who they were killing, who they were murdering. They were murdering real people. Right. And that's why he painted the Warrior Darkness as this evil person and as this murderer, like us, as a murderer, that we were just killing our own people. So we were no better than them, basically, is what he was trying to say through that whole, that whole sequence. And I loved how they did that sequence because they brought everybody back. He had us killing the Stola. He had us killing Lee. He had us killing us, our, our own people yeah. to just prove that's what we were doing to them. We were just killing regular people. That's it. Who just wanted their lives back. Yeah, it goes, it goes to um, show just like the, the twist to the entire story. And like that's what I loved about this expansion pack was, okay, you're no longer the good guy. You no longer have that good guy image. Right, so you're walking down this dark right. path, trying to do the right thing, but now you're doing it solely because it is the right thing to you, and even though the world sees it as the wrong thing, and the wrong thing, it's it's mm-hmm. a really twisted and dark premise, but it led to a lot of unique things as far as you know, even from a game development perspective, like all like all of the light creatures they were able to push through with this with this story. And um, I, I think it was, I think it was fantastic. And I love the dark, creepy storylines they they've been putting out recently. And 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 the way they just turned a little bit, who went from being you know Zodiac's heart, the heart of Zodiac, to becoming a primal himself. Right. Because we all know how primals are. Primals get their power from being summoned from other people, and all these warriors of light. He basically created those star showers and created all this to have people worship him, which eventually gave him the power to become a primal. Yeah. And then, and then he got the crystal from the crystal Exarch with his, the, you know, with his blood in it and all. And he was able to control the tower and summon all these warriors of light down, which just fueled him to become the primal that he became. And, um, it was just like, like you said, it was just, it was just insane the route that they went with this story. Uh, there would be no way that any of us could have guessed 
that that was the route that this was going to go at, at all. I, I don't think anybody would have saw this coming. Um, you know, I thought it was going to be Zodiac. I, I thought they, they were just, they were putting it that way, that that's what it was going to be. And then they threw you a curveball when it came out. Right. I mean, it just turned the whole world upside down. Yeah. And it was insane. It was insane. Yeah, they're definitely saving Zodiac um, for something big, right? Like they're they're they're, they're working up to this Zodiac fight, and I like I I'll even speculate on Zodiac, right? I think there's going to be a big clash where Zodiac Zodiac and Heidelin show up at the same time, and then I think Zodiac is oh, yeah. going to be a multi-stage fight. It's not just going to be. It might be a 24-man raid. It might be whatever, and then and because the, everybody knows my theory. After you beat the 24-man three-set raid of Zodiac or whatever they do, it's going to be a grand ultimate primal fight against Heidelin. That's my that's my speculation at the very end of this. Yeah. But why Heidelin, though? Like, I, Heidelin's on the good side. I think Heidelin's bad. Heidelin's still a primal. I think Heidelin's bad. I will always think that is everybody... everybody Thinks my theory is crazy and whacked out. But she, it doesn't change the fact that Highland is a primal, despite the fact that she put you where you are. And there might be a reason why we are here. You're right. You know, you, know, you are right. I don't, I won't take that away from you. She is definitely a primal, but it's a way left field theory, but it's in my head. It is a way, it is a way <laughs> left field theory. It is a way, it is a way left field theory. Um, yeah, but overall, um, now that, you know, we concluded, you know, the Shadow bring the story, we've had three expansions in the game. Um, Shadowbringers, in my opinion, by far, best story. Um, by far. Um, Heaven Sword for me was second. ARR was third. Stormblood will always be my weakest. Um, but Shadowbringers, by far, blew away any story that they could have put together in this game. Just from graphical standpoint, the areas were amazing, um, and, and just the, the characters, just just the cast of characters from um, Elizabeth to Emmett. Emmett, by far, hands down, I think was the best character, um, in my opinion. He was the best, I think, in the whole Shadowbringer story. He was good, and um, he added a, a different flavor. You know, he's he he was just kind of like kind of cocky a little bit of attitude here and there but at the same time like he had a purpose right and then um, yeah where i think the difference between elitibus and emmett salk was elitibus was just pure purpose like he was just there to do a job and that is it and uh emmett salk was more like he, he seemed more human right he's like all right like i'm helping you out here well guess what i'm actually against you but I'll help you out with this because in the end I want this to happen. So like he's either fighting with himself or he's toying with you or a combination of both. And I think that's why people clung to Emmett so much. I think Emmett's had his eyes opened near the end of that. And I think that's why he came back and helped because he saw what was happening and he was like, you know what? They are right. This, This is wrong. What, you know, we're doing. Yeah, our you know our race is you know extinct, non-existent, but it was our fault. We did it, you know, to ourselves by trying to summon Zodiac and trying to bring all this thing back. And I think 
eventually near the end, he realized, and that's where he turned yep. and realized what Elizabeth was doing was wrong. And he said, well, no, you're, this isn't happening. And that's why he saved us in that fight and brought us back because he wanted to put an end to what Elizabeth was trying to do because Elizabeth got off. He was just off the wall. Yep. He, he lost sight of what he was doing. And that whole speech about, you know, he wasn't doing it for the right reason, whatever, you know, however it was worded, his focus. And he let the power consume him. And he, and he was no longer doing what he was supposed to be doing. And that's where Emmett stepped in and said, no, this isn't happening. And that's where I, why he came and helped. Yeah. Which is why I like Emmett, because I like that he opened his eyes and realized it and came to the side of good. Because in a way, he did have some good in him. Because Emmett had a lot of chances to kill us, and he really did it. He just was opening our eyes to what happened, and that was it. He just wanted us to know what was going on. I don't think Emmett really had the intention to kill us. He just wanted us to know, well, this is what you did to us, and not us particularly, but this is what everybody did to our race. You guys killed us. You, your people did this mm -hmm. to us. But in actuality, we really did it. The Asians just got self-consumed with power that they did it to themselves. So it was nice. I liked, you know, that's what made me love Emmett more is because he self-realized and he just turned around and he made that change on, you know, his own. Yeah. Yeah. So, and like what was really cool, like one of my favorite parts of the ending uh, was that interaction with Elizabeth and, and I forget what you mentioned to him. You say something about something he's got to remember. And he's like sitting there, right. literally yeah. just like looking around, like questioning himself, like, why don't I remember this? And he's holding something at that point in time. Correct. And like, that's, that's my favorite part. And the reason is because he's still part of himself, but he can't grasp it anymore because he's so influenced by this primal, uh, I don't think it's a manipulation. I think it's a, a belief, right? He he just believes he, he is right. this. And he's just like, there's a point where he completely like freezes and he's confused and you almost stop him from becoming the warrior of light right then and there. Right. But then at the same time, he, he's like, correct. He's, he's so, he's almost like an empty shell of a person. And he's like, so like, he's just like, no, I need to do this. And it, it's this monitor, like, I believe he speaks in like almost like a monotone type of thing. Like he's so like yeah. zombified or, yeah. or like taken over by this thing that he's not, he's, he's not even, he's not even like a being anymore. He's just a, a zombie practically. It, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, he fought with himself a lot trying to remember because there were a lot of cutscenes where he was standing there with the two other Asians in the robes. And he constantly kept saying, well, I know I have a purpose. And I'm going to, you know, fulfill my purpose. But eventually, you know, like you said, he just became so overwhelmed with the power and then just do trying to take over what he was taking over that he lost that purpose and he couldn't remember it because it just wasn't right. coming to him because the, the primal was starting to take over. And that was it. And once he lost that focus, there was nothing else that you could do except destroy him, you know, and then eventually after that fight, and you finally did beat him and you went through all those cutscenes and then you're just standing in front of him with him on the ground on his knees. He finally starts to remember what his purpose was. But by that time it was already too late because the primal was already defeated. It was already 
taken from him once you got the um, the shard back for the Crystal XR, he lost all that power. And then he finally started to have that self-realization that this wasn't my purpose, but now too right. late. And the only thing to do at that point was lock him up because you don't know that that urge, that primal urge always comes back. Cause you know how a primal, you can't kill a primal. They eventually can be summoned back. We've learned that through all the primals that they don't die. You just defeat them. They disappear, but they can always be summoned yep. back. So the only way to stop him is to lock him away for good. And that's what had to happen. So it's good that he did finally self-realize after everything that I had another purpose and I lost sight of that purpose. And I think he ultimately just understood what he did wrong and he just accepted what was going to happen. And this was, that, that just was his end. But I think it was good that the way they tied that story and to have him actually self-realize what he did wrong I think was a good tie into the end of that story mm-hmm. for him. Because at least he got, he, he got his piece, you know, and he got locked into the tower, at least knowing that in his head, he messed up and he's got nobody to blame but himself at that point. And I think they tied that in and they ended that really well. Yeah, they, they did a fantastic job at the ending. I, I think it was like, I enjoyed it. And like my emotions were flying around the whole time. And, it was, and, and there yep. was, um, there was a good, a strong buildup too. Like you could tell, with the convocation that there was some internal political debate or war actually thing right? going on. So yep. it's not like they just went and said, Oh, we're all doing, we're all something Zodiac. Like there was one person who was strictly against it and almost decided not to participate. And then the others were all having their own opinions and about it. And like, like it, it's just, it's so good. It's getting the multiple angles and the war floating behind the scenes. It's, um, it's definitely it, it made it so, so worth it. They did a great job with Shadow, Shadowbringers. And the last, and you know, the last two, you know, elephants in the room as far as the MSQ goes, Crystal Exarch dying, but then coming back in the source um, with his memories intact and all. That was a, a great moment because that brings a tear to your eye because you get so attached to him, and then all of a sudden you come to the source and you see the warrior light running to the tower and then it fades out when he goes in and you don't know what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden it brings you X amount of months later and you're in Mordona with everybody there. And the next elephant in the room is Alice a getting all upset because she's still seeing old Dorma Alice a why Uriange, Thancred and Estrella all got their new looks from the first and poor Alice a and Alphanot got nothing. Right. And then all, and all of a sudden, here comes Grahati out of nowhere. I thought that was awesome. I don't know if he needed to be brought back, which is leading me to believe he's going to play a huge part in future expansions because the Athens are mm-hmm. still around. Why, why would you bring Grahati back if you weren't going to be using him in some capacity in the next story? Right, right. And I have a feeling with the resentment that Alice is starting to build up. You know the Asians feed off of that. Something's telling me they're going to want to take somehow take control of her, like they did with Thancred at that one point, and turn her in some way. I think her resentment is just going to start to build up to the point of why am I not getting anything? Why am I always getting left behind? She's got this whole why me attitude going that I think her resentment is going to build up so much that the Asians are going to take control of that. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean that that's something good to because that's a good speculation because we just don't know. She's she's always got she's got this runoff like I'm just gonna charge yep. in there. Uh, I'm not gonna think twice about my actions. I'm just gonna go in there. So that could be yep. never at all because she always has to prove that she's not just another person that she doesn't have like any power or anything. Like that. She feels like she's behind everybody else and she's just below everybody and. That the Asians they feed off of that, and, and that's eventually how they can take over the body because they feed off your weakness. And if she starts to show that too much, and her anger starts to build, and her resentment starts to build, I can see in some capacity that happening, which is then going to what's going to happen is once that happens, it could lead to a moment where, well, the only way to save her is we have to kill her, right? Because eventually, we know somewhere along the line, some of these signs are going to go down. There's no possible way we're going to go through all these expansions and somebody's not going to die somewhere. Mm-hmm. It, it can't. It can't happen. There has to be some sorrow. There has to be some loss somewhere along the line. And uh, the way Alice is going, I would not be surprised if it winds up being her. Just because, or she's going to go and sacrifice herself because she has to be that person to go head on, and she's going to sacrifice her some, herself somewhere to save everybody else because she wants to be the one to be known that I can hold my own and I can do this. And that could be a way that she's going to go. But I see her being the first one going when one of the scions do go. Right. Right. And like, so, I mean, they could turn her, they could aim towards, you know, your party, but then also now it is known that you can bring people from another world or across worlds, you can transport them. Right? And I believe, but right. I don't remember. It was somewhere in the middle of Shadowbringers, or maybe in the post Shadowbringers uh, quests. But Xenos gets hinted at some of this power going on, like you traveling to the first and all that, right? So, right, right. He, he I forget. Who tells him? But he's alert. He's alerted of this magic, and I believe it's shortly after you stop the. What is it? The black. What's it called? The black. Yeah, the uh, black, rose. black rose. Right. Yeah. So I think something's going to happen there, where like maybe even Xenon starts warping around, or starts going between the, the different, you know, different worlds. Along with this new right. Asian, and does something similar, or brings about Zodiac by taking one world out because he figures out how this knowledge is working. So, I mean, that's the topic. Right, but, I don't know for sure, but no, no, and uh, and um, pushing on time um, because this is going to be one of my by far longest <laughs> episodes ever. Um, I, I I just hope they don't do this whole world hopping thing. Cause then, you know, there's so many different stars. There's X amount of, you know, the first, second, third sort. We know there's so many of them. If they do go that route, then this game will be dragged on for years. Um, I don't see Yoshi P doing that. Um, but who knows? Um, the last thing um, for the spoiler cast, I don't think you have done it yet. Um, is um, Sapphire weapon. Um <laughs> So I won't heavy spoil it because I don't think you've done it yet I yourself. I haven't done it yet. Um, 
it is a very interesting fight. Um, it's a, uh, your first solo trial. Um, I'm, all I'm going to say is it's very interesting. Um, they did really well with um, the history of the Sapphire weapon and just um, how that fight goes. Um, I, I don't know if it's a much needed aspect of a story. I don't think it's really needed. I haven't, I really haven't seen the purpose of this story yet. I get it. It's Gaius and his adopted kids and the adopted kids are pissed off at Gaius and they're trying to prove themselves to the Guardian empire by, you know, creating these weapons and taking these weapons and destroying Mm -hmm. Eorzea. Um, and they're trying to take out Gaius because Gaius turned his back on the Garlean Empire. I, I get it. I understand it. It's a it's a good concept because everybody raved about bringing the weapons into the game from Final Fantasy VII. In actuality, this is actually a Final Fantasy VII tie-in because all these weapons came from Final Fantasy VII. Um, or yeah, so we have our tie-in right there. You know, we know Diamond and Emerald Weapon are going to be coming eventually because you know it was four weapons yeah. all together. Um, but it's, I, I just feel it's, it's a, it's a weaker story. Um, the trial fight is a lot of fun. It's hard. Um, I found out, which I didn't know in these solo instances, if you do die, when you go into it again, you can then choose to lower the difficulty level and you can go down to easy and very easy. Okay. So I did not know that. I still did it on normal. Um, it took me four times to clear it because it is a very interesting fight. Um, I'll leave it there because since you haven't done it, um, but for the people out there who are listening, if you've done that fight, um, feel free to reach out to me by email. If you, you know, if you want to discuss it, um, you can, you know, reach me on Facebook. Um, I have no problem talking about it. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's unique. Um, yeah, it's unique. Um, Rax, definitely try it out when you get a chance. It's, uh, it's an interesting fight. It's a very next on my list. Um, yeah, definitely interesting. Um, so it was, you know, again, sake of time, it's a, you know, a great episode. Um, again, um, thank you, you know, all guys for sticking with us um, through this episode. Um, of course, it's a spoiler cast episode, so you definitely know, you know, it was going to be longer um, than normal. Um, next week, um, the beginning of this episode, I started, I did the healer classes and going over the history of the healers. Um Next week, I'm going to do melee DPS. So I will try to drag Rax along with us since he plays Monk. And um, we can discuss the Monk class and um, how it's played, um, how to maximize your Monk class and all that stuff. You know, I'll go into the history since, you know, I have the encyclopedias and all here. And then, you know, the skills and all that, you know, are their top tier skills um, since Rax plays the Monk. Um, I can let him talk about the skills and you know how to optimize you know the playstyle for the monk, um, because let's face it, he specializes in that class. I don't. Um, it's very true. But anyway, but I'm here to I'm so, here to help everybody and everyone be a successful monk. <laughs> so again, for any any new listeners that are out there, Rax, give him your info for people so they know where to find you for our new listeners that may be joining? Uh, sure. So um, you can find me on Altros. My name is Rax Calric. Uh, outside of that, I am on Twitch. So you can look up twitch.tv slash DJ Manmade since I, uh, I do um, 
uh, little DJ sets here and there, and that's Man Made with two N's. And then also the same, I have the same name on Facebook as well. Um, that's a good way to reach out to me uh, on either of those platforms. And you know, I stream um, Twitch.tv World of FF14. Um, same on Facebook. Uh, same on the Patreon. Um, Patreon.com World of FF14. Still doing the raffles um, for the art commission of your character. Um, any tier you sign up for, $1, $2, $5 tier, that's the amount of raffle tickets that you get. Um, chapters four and five of my first book are going up for the $2 and $5 tiers uh, this weekend. So for the people who are already part of that tier, uh, keep a lookout for those. Um, and also my Discord for my FC is now going um, – it's open to everybody on the primal data center. So if any listeners are out there um, on the primal data center, reach out to me, I'll get you a link. Um, you can join the discord. Um, we're always on there. We're always active. Uh, racks about for that where we're always doing games, trivia contests, you name it. It's always going on in the discord. Um, one of my assistants, um, Faya has um, fixed up the discord. It's a lot more in order. Um, and there's just a lot of cool stuff. Um, so definitely reach out to me. Um, if you're a part of the data center, uh, if you want to join us, um, I will definitely get you a link. Um, but with that, anything else you want to add? No, I think we covered everything we needed to cover and, uh, we speculated everything. Uh, we went through some, some of the new raid content. I think, I think we hit all the bullet points. Awesome. So until next week, we'll, uh, we will let everybody go. And as always, Keegan, a.k.a. Artemis, we're signing out. Happy adventuring.